just one small observation as we get ready to study what we study this evening. That one of the necessary components to living a life that is worthy of the Lord, a life that is seeking to please Him in all respects, is an ever-increasing knowledge of God. A greater understanding of His will and His being. And the more you know God, the more really you will want to live for Him. It's the knowledge of, of Christ that, that moves us by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to want to live for Him. And the higher or more accurate view of God that we have, really the more endurance you'll have to, to face the trials that uh, you might face in this world, and the more accurate view you have of God, the more faithfully you will worship Him. And that is God's call upon our lives, that we would worship Him in spirit and in truth. That, that we would know His Word, know Him better, and then worship Him in accordance with those, with those truths, those realities that we come to understand. And so we come to, uh, as you see in our uh, Becoming a Biblical Leader um, book, the study of theology proper. Theology proper is the study of God, is the doctrine pertaining to God. Some of the topics that are included that you might find if, if you were to pick up a systematic theology and read through it um, in relation to God is the existence of God, um, the names of God, the triunity of God, the decree of God, God as, as the creator, and, and also, and not limited to this, but, but also the attributes of God, or better referred to as his perfections. And so tonight I want to dive into really what has been for me over the last uh, year in particular, a bottomless ocean of just one of God's perfections, his immutability. And the reason I chose his immutability out of all the things that we could have chosen is because of some of the difficult passages of scripture that we are about to encounter in 1 Samuel 15, where namely in verse 11 and verse 35, God's word expresses that God regrets making Saul king. Um, and at first glance, you might think that God can decide to do something and then change his, his mind and do something else. Or as if he made a mistake in letting Saul become king and now he's, he's changing his mind about the whole thing. You see this similar thing in uh, Genesis chapter 6. And he's like, man, I blew it. I wish I would not have made man. I wipe them off the face of this planet. And so tonight I hope to set the stage for that, because I'll, I'll preach on, on one of the features of God's immutability, and that is his impassibility. God without passions. And impassibility has been defined in this way. It's God does not experience emotional changes, either from within or affected by his relationship to creation. So that's to say that God is not a God of, of mood swings, where he is happy one moment and angry the next, and so on. And so having a more firm grasp of, of God's immutability will, will help us as we consider those difficult passages in light of his impassibility in the near future. And we really want to have somewhat of a grip on, on just what is God's immutability as we get there. <laughs> So let's consider God's immutability together this evening. And 
I want to warn you at the outset um, that there will be times where I get a little bit technical. Um, it, it may not feel uh, like it normally does when I'm preaching or teaching. There will be moments where you might feel like you're more in a seminary classroom. I'm going to try not to bore you with this. I know you know, this is at the end of a long day for, for all of us, and so, but, but I really want to, to get somewhat of a grip on, on this topic. And it is critical that we strive to understand who God is correctly because, because of the danger of idolatry. Um, we must worship God accurately in truth, otherwise it really isn't true worship. And that is why Paul prays for the church to constantly be increasing in their knowledge of God. Because while it is impossible to know God completely, we can know him truly. And so that's my goal, to help us understand at least this truth about God in a deeper way. Um, so as to move us to a more profound and faithful worship. And I'll also say this, you will probably end up having more questions than answers as a result of our time together this evening. But... I'm not trying to confuse you. It's just when the finite is studying the infinite, um, we just cannot fully comprehend him. So, without any more delay, the immutability of God. And we'll just get a grip on the time here so we don't... Uh, I'm not going to get to it all this evening, so um, we'll do a part two next week instead of a review. So you guys are off the hook getting questioned on this material. But remember, that in a few weeks, you will be accountable for everything you've learned. So we'll probably dip into this at that time. So you got some time. To say that God is immutable is to say that God is devoid of all change. Uh, his perfections do not change. His purposes do not change. His affections do not change. And I use the word affection intentionally rather than passions. He is perfect in his immutability. And therefore, he does not change for the better, and he does not change for the worse. Um, he is above all becoming, because he is pure being. So, so he is. He's not going to become something better, and he's not going to lose or decay in any way of himself. It's impossible for God to change in any way. Many pastors and theologians have gone before us in, in contemplating who and, and what God is. And so I want to give you some definitions of, of God's immutability from these men. Just to, just to help us think about some different nuances that, that don't probably readily come to our mind when we think about God's immutability. First from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, which was first written in 1646 by a gathering of, of pastor theologians in the Westminster Abbey of, of England. This confession of faith was written, and it's really foundational to much of what has been written theologically and biblically over the last 300 plus years. Most theologians would, would go back to, to the, these statements that are made in the Westminster Confession and say, okay, so how do we develop that? What does that mean? And... And so it says this in chapter 2.1 of the Confession about God. There is but one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, 
immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. His most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That is to say, close quote, that God is his perfections. God is his attributes. He is not made up of his perfections. Um, as if to say that you could add love and mercy to, to one another, and his holiness, and, and his righteousness, and his immutability. And if you add all those things up all together, those characteristics together, that, that he would be the sum total of those things. But rather, God is infinite in being in perfection. And so, he is his perfections. You would see in different places of scripture, like in 1 John 4, God is love. Um, he tells the Israelites, you are to be holy, for I am holy. And he is good. So he is his perfections, without body, parts, or passions. He is love, he is mercy, he is holy, he is infinite. He is omnipresent, he is gracious, he is eternal, he is immutable, all at the same time, if you will. And so for us, because we are finite, we have to sort of break these realities apart and examine each perfection and try to get our minds wrapped around each one. And even God's word in his, in his gracious accommodation to us, as he, as he speaks our language to us, as he comes down to our level, if you will, even his word focuses at times on just one of his perfections. And and so there, there will be times where he is demonstrating his love, where he's demonstrating his righteousness, or making his power known. But we need to remember and, and, and keep this in mind that that's an emphasis, not an exclusion. It's not like in that moment he's more loving and his, and his righteousness has subsided. Or that he's now he's showing mercy and he's, he's devoid of his wrath. But, so, so, when we, so when we consider a certain perfection of God individually, like we're doing this evening, don't let yourself forget that his immutability, it's not separate from his love, nor separate from his mercy. He's immutable in his love. He's immutable in his holiness and immutable in all his perfections all at the same time. So... Also notice this in the Westminster Confession. It says that he is immutable in his being and immutable in his will. So in who he is, what he decides, what his choice is. In other words, he only has one will. You don't have the will of the Father and then the will of the Son and then the will of the Holy Spirit. Uh, not an eternity past. You know, the Son does submit his will to the Father in his humanity, but not in his deity. And so there's only one will because he is without body, parts, or passions. And so he's not going to change his will at some point in time. And it's not going to be affected by us. 
He's immutable. And so, again, theologians have been working on articulating these truths that, as we'll see, are clearly biblical. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this. And here are some, some definitions to help you think about it. In the Master Seminary Biblical Doctrine, the White Book, it defines God's immutability succinctly in this way. It says, God's immutability is his perfect unchangeability in his essence, character, purpose, and promises. Um, in other words, God does not change in who or what he is, that is, his essence, and therefore he does not change in what he says or does, that is, is his will and his purpose. Herman Bobbing, that's how you say it, the Dutch Reformed theologian from the late 1800s to the early 1900s, he defines it this way. It's a little bit of a longer quote, so, so just bear with me here because they're kind of, they kind of grab a lot of the pieces to this puzzle for us a little bit. He says this, while everything changes, God is and remains the same. If God were not immutable, he would not be God. To God alone belongs true being, and that which truly is, it remains. This doctrine of God's immutability is important. The very distinction between, uh, this is still bothering, creator and creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. Does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking with me to some, to some degree? So he says this further. Our reliance on God depends on his immutability. God is unchangeable in his existence and being. He is so also in his thought and will, in all his plans and decisions. So, so think about it like this, and, and he says this. No new plan ever arose in God. So it's not like he was in eternity past. And at some moment in eternity past, he thought of, okay, this is what I'm going to do. It's, it's part of him, okay? beyond our, our capacity to grasp. But, but no new plan ever arose in God. In God, there was always one single immutable will. So, you know, just to relate that a little bit for us, is there, there's no genuine what-ifs in this world. You know, we, we think about, okay, if I do this, then this might happen. If I do this, this might happen. And, and yes, it's important to weigh out the pros and the cons and make decisions wisely and biblically. But... Part of that biblical thinking is, is whatever happens is a part of God's immutable plan from eternity, from all eternity. It, 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 there's no infant factor. Adam's choice in the garden, though fully his responsibility and his sin, is a part of the immutable plan of God. Also, Louis Burkhoff these two guys have been so helpful to me in thinking about this. Um, he, he defines immutability like this in his systematic theology. It is that perfection of God by which he is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfections, and his, in his purposes and promises. He says, in virtue of this attribute, he is exalted above all becomings. And we talked about that. He's transcendent. He's higher than any becoming, any change. There we go. And is free from all accession and diminution. In, in, in other words, 
uh, he's not going to get any more sovereign, any more, he's not going to get higher in rank, and he's not going to get any lower in rank. And he's free from all growth or decay in his being or professions. His knowledge and plans, his moral principles and volitions remain forever the same. And he says this, even reason teaches us that no change is possible in God, since a change is either for the better or for the worse. But in God, as the absolute perfection, improvement and deterioration are both equally impossible. So to work, God does not change. He cannot change. So, there's some definitions to, to kind of help us grapple with this. So what I, what I want to do for the rest of our time, we'll, we'll get into part of it because we'll, we'll finish up next week, but I want to consider this truth from different angles in relation to, to other perfections and truths about God um, so that we can get a clear picture of his immutable glory. And so we're going we're gonna to see how this immutability relates to uh, the idea of his perfection and his self-existence. Um, and then we're going to consider just what the Bible says. It tells us flat out that God does not change all throughout his word. That's what we'll get to through this evening. And then, then uh, when we come back next week, Lord willing, we'll look at some of those difficult passages. So what do we do with the Bible where it tells us that he tells Moses, I'm, I'm getting angry at you. <laughs> and I'm about to destroy these people. And how about I just kill them all off and we'll start over with you. <laughs> and it seems as if Moses is talking him down. You know, as if, you know, God is reacting to Israel's sin. It's not possible for God to react to anything. And so, what do we do with those difficult passages? I want to get there next week. And then, um, and hopefully I'll have a little bit of this tonight as well, but, but then we'll really hone in on and how should this impact us. What does this look like for our daily Christian walk? Why is it so critical for us to, to grow in our understanding of God's immutability? Personally speaking. So, I have a little outline. I, I do plan on getting you kind of this material. So if you take notes separately, that will probably help you. But I will also get you some, some materials, more than one um, that of what I've talked about here. Some of those quotes you can see them for yourself as well. And then we'll review it, obviously, a little bit next week just to, to keep this fresh on our mind. So the first heading I have is the foundation of God's immutability. The foundation. Now, when I say foundation, I'm not saying that God's immutability is in some way dependent on these things. It's not like he's got to have this, you know, to be immutable. It's just they're connected. They're in some way, there's a necessary association, if you will, or a natural connection that helps us understand God's immutability in a, in a clearer way. Because as we established before, God is his attributes, and so all his perfections are interconnected and interrelated. So, some foundational thoughts then for us. One helpful attribute that naturally connects with God's immutability is the perfection of God, that he is perfect. Is it? Um... That is the truth. Again, that God is perfect. And, and Jesus says, you are to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, obviously, we can't become God. 
So in that sense, he's talking about moral perfection, you know, fulfilling God's law perfectly there. But still, there's an idea of God's perfection there, that, that there's no flaw in him whatsoever, morally speaking. Uh, but, but Psalm 18 and, and verse 30, and you can turn with me if you want to these passages. We're going to go, obviously, all over the Bible this evening. It might help you stay awake <laughs> a little bit um, this evening. But Psalm 18, verse 30. <coughs> As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. So, so God is blameless. He's perfect. Some translations even say he's perfect. Use that word. And his word is tried in the sense that it's also perfect. Deuteronomy 32 In verse 4, Moses' praise psalm for what God had done with his people says, The rock, we're going to come back to that next week, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is perfect. That is to say he is flawless. He's faultless. He's, he's absolute. He's complete. Um, he is in need of nothing. If God, is, if God is perfect, then he cannot change. And so it's not as if Yahweh felt like he was missing out on some sort of fulfillment in, or some relationship void. And so he decided, you know what, I've got to create people so I can, so I can, you know, fill this void that is that is in me, um, some void in his life, because the reality is is that God is life, and so He is absolutely full in Himself. He's He's perfect. We cannot change, because change would imply that there is some deficiency in Him. So you see the connection there to immutability and God's change. If he's perfect, uh, then there is no deficiency. There is no need for change. And that would mean, if he's not perfect, that there is something greater than him. But God's word tells us that there's nothing, no one, none greater. Think of Psalm 143. Why? Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is Yahweh. And really, it's the same word, highly, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. So he is great, and so he's worthy of praise that is in relation to that greatness and understanding of who he is as the transcendent one, the greatest one, and yet that greatness is unsearchable. Uh, my my uh, he, uh, my theology professor called this blessed despair because it's like there's nothing greater no greater blessing than getting to study God and yet there's such despair in it because as you learn more you realize how much you don't know and how how much how great He really is and it's beyond us it's 
So blessed is despair. Another passage that highlights that there is none greater is in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, where the author of Hebrews is talking about God's covenant with Abraham and God's work of salvation for all. But he highlights in relation to God's covenant with Abraham, he says in verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Remember, he cut the animals in two, and he passed through those animals, some manifestation of God, incarnate Christ sort of stuff. And he swore by himself. He's saying, my promises to Abraham are as eternal and as fixed as I am. He swore by no one greater. Because he's the greatest. And so if there is no one or nothing greater than God, then he must be perfect and therefore unchangeable. Another perfection that naturally accompanies God's immutability is the aseity or the self-existence of God. Um, to say that God is self-existent is to say that he exists in and of himself. Uh, he is the ground of his existence and therefore completely independent. And we can see this in the way that he created the world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and we see that he created everything out of nothing. Everything that is he brought it into existence out of nothing. Only one who needs nothing can create out of nothing. And so right at the outset of the Bible for us, in Genesis 1-1, we don't, we don't only see that, that, that it doesn't just teach that God created the heavens and the earth. It does. Created the heavens and the earth in the beginning of time. And, and so therefore God created time. It also teaches that God was there before the beginning. <laughs> that he is infinite. And therefore free from all the limitations of, of time. And that he is eternal. So he's always been. He always will be. He doesn't have a beginning. And therefore he is absolutely self-existent. He simply is. He is life in himself. So he is the only uncaused being. Everything else has a cause. God is the ultimate cause. But when it comes to the existence of God, he had no cause. He exists in himself, unlike everything else that exists. The cause of his existence is not outside of himself. And, and this is essential to our understanding of God. In, in when it comes to worshiping God for who he is, it is critical. This is huge. The, the creator-creature distinction. God has no cause. He is. Everything else has cause. And so therefore, God is completely independent. And that's what his self-existence is. He's, he is 100% independent. And we, as being caused, are completely dependent. We're dependent on humans. And we're dependent on God. We were form, the natural way that God created, man and woman together, bring about a child. But Psalm 139 says that you knit me together 
in my mother's womb. So there's a, there's, a, there's a part in which God played a very specific role in the birth of, or, or the conception of each individual person. So God is completely independent and we are completely dependent. Another passage that highlights this. Look at Acts chapter 17. Again, if you have your Bible, I do encourage you to just follow me there. Acts 17. Have I totally lost anybody yet? Follow me. If you have a question, I may not have the answer, but you can pause me and we can quickly talk it through. Um, Acts 17, verses 22 through 29. Uh, Paul is preaching to the men of Athens. Uh, he, he gets to preach the gospel to them and call them to repentance. And they're worshiping all kinds of what they call deities. They're all their statues of who they think is God. And then they have a statue to an unknown God. And Paul takes that opportunity to say, hey, that God you don't know, that's, that's the God. That, that is the only God. And he says this. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar which, with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Notice the ever-present gives. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, where people live, how far they will go, what they will do, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, though he's transcendent, he's near. For in him, verse 28, we live, we breathe, really, and move what we do and exist. Start being in general. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, and the image formed by the art and thought of man. God is the creator. We are the creatures. And he states here that our existence, our very life, our breath is totally dependent upon God. Our movements, everything we do, who we are in our existence is completely found in him. For in him we live and move and exist. And so as Louis Burkhoff states in relation to God's insanity, he says as the self-existing God, he is not only independent in himself, but also causes everything to depend on him. And so the reality is, is that we cannot affect God in any way. He's the uncaused cause. The unmoved mover. Talk a little bit about that more. We can't 
Uh, we've heard Pastor Moses talk about this. We can't add any more glory to God when we say give glory to God. We're not talking about giving him something that he lacks. We're talking about ascribing to God, stating his gloriousness. We were, we're looking at the word of God and saying this is who God is. And we're, we're ascribing that praise to God. But we're not adding anything to God. And, and in the same token, we can't, we can't take anything away from God. We can't make him sad or make him happy or make him angry. We can't bring him pleasure Getting into some of the impassibility of God. He is complete in himself. And is untouchable and therefore immovable and unchangeable. If he's the cause of all things, then everything moves based upon him. And nothing can move him. So you could say he's the ultimate cause of all things. And so we, you know, we have some struggles thinking about, okay, well then what about my sin? We're about Adam's sin. Well, again, God is not the author of evil in the sense that he made Adam sin, but his plan included Adam's sin. He's the ultimate cause. And then there are secondary causes that end up happening, but again, God is over all. And that all flows from his unchangeable. <laughs> and so, uh, thinking again of his, uh, as we as we consider his aseity, uh, Job. We're talking uh, to Pastor Moses a lot. He's been studying through the Book of Job for a while, and um, been loving some of the insights that he has been sharing with me. And one of those is that since Job is the first book probably written in the Bible, you know, we have Genesis our order, but Job is probably the first one written. It asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. So there's some amazing things that we see right away that God is above all, he's sovereign over all, even Satan, you know, he's got to, he tells Satan, you got you to pick out Job. You know, it wasn't Satan's choice first and foremost, it was God to say, go to Job. But as Job goes through that horrendous trial, He gets questioned by God towards towards the end, so to speak. And one of the one of the verses, just one, verse forty, chapter forty-one, verse eleven says, "Job, who has given to me, that is God, that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is the one who owns everything. He's caused all things." Outside of him. So. Other passages that highlight the reality of God's aseity. Exodus 3, 14, when, when God calls Moses to go and lead his people out of Egypt, and, and Moses says, Hey, who should I say sent me? <laughs> God says, I am, but I am. I am has sent you. And that that name of God. Highlights his self-existence. I, I simply am. There's no one else like that. John chapter 5 and verse 26. Jesus bears testimony to this saying of God. And then his own deity, 
For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. God has life in himself. Romans 11, 33-36, there's a quote there from Job. Again, who, who do I owe? You know, and a lot of times, that can be part of the struggle in life, in our, in our, in our trials. As if we think God should do a certain thing for us, as if he owes us something. I mean, that's the whole theology behind, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Most people think of God as one who's just sitting there waiting for them to call out to him so that then he could respond to their faith and their repentance and give them salvation. But if God is the ultimate cause, God is the one that causes our faith and our repentance. God is the one that determined our faith and our repentance. God is the one who, who chose us, not, not the other way around. <laughs> we, we don't want to think of God that way because that's who God is. <laughs> we don't want to have a low view of God as if he's somewhat dependent upon us. You know, you've heard people say, you know, if you were the only one here on earth, God would have sent his son to die for you. <laughs> well, first of all, again, there's no what ifs when it comes to God. <laughs> and second of all, Jesus died for his people. So it's not as if it was all about us. And ultimately we see that he sent his son to die for his people, that he would give his people back to God. And, and then God brings them together in the end. It's all about God's glory. Salvation is. Colossians 1.17 highlighting the deity of Christ. In his aseity. And it's astounding how much theology is packed into the word is. Verse 17, he is before all things. All grammar tells us to say he was before all things. If we're talking about something before, then it has to be something that was. But Paul is specific here because he's talking about the greatness and the preeminence of Christ and his deity. He is before all things. So he exists in himself. And in him all things hold together. That means all things are caused by him and held together by him. So all things are dependent upon him. So let's try to connect this here to the immutability of God. If God is outside of time and exists in himself and is the uncaused cause of all things, then he cannot be changed. God is not like us. And so that's why when we are trying to grasp something like this, we're, we're dumbfounded, really. That's why when you look at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, he says, my, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, for my ways are higher than your ways. You, you just can't get there. By God's kindness and in his providence and his immutable plan, he gave us his word to help us get a glimpse of who he is. And so part of the worship experience for us is to come to the realization that we cannot comprehend his greatness. He's transcendent. 
And again, as I said before, that, that whole idea of blessed despair. Some people just choose to be illiterate of the perfections of God due to just saying, studying other things, doing other things, and not everybody has the same amount of time, and I, and I understand that. But sometimes it's like, well, it's good, you know, God's word says it, so it's good enough for me. Now, I love the mentality that if God's word says it, that's true, and, you're, and that's settled for me. Um, that should be the case. But it shouldn't be that, okay, well, I just can't get there, so I'm not, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to leave that to others to think about. Because this word was given to all of us, and the call upon our lives is to constantly be growing in that knowledge. Not so that we could debate the finest points of theology and win that debate. Though there's places for that, for the glory of Christ, where, where people can highlight what God's word says, as opposed to other arguments that are trying to deny him. But it's not for the point of debate or some, some sort of look at me. If you go to the immutability of God, and I know we all struggle with this, right, in our pride, but if we go to the immutability of God and we become arrogant because of what we learn of him, I think we've missed the immutability of God. I mean, humility should be one of the, one of the main uh, responses of our life when we think about God's immutability. We can't grasp what is unchangeable. I mean, I am angry and sad and happy. I can, I can go from, from, you know, furious to calm in, in a matter of a second. <laughs> so many changes. For God, not ounce of change. Um, it should bring about true dependence. You can think of the immutability of God as the rock that crushes all pride and invites all dependence. It's to say, like David, and we'll go there, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God is my rock and my salvation. God is my rock and my redeemer. He's my stronghold. And that really is our hope, right? I mean, uh, we'll, we'll see this Hebrews 6, our salvation is built upon the steady anchor of God's immutability and his immutable will, his immutable plan. Our salvation is secure. It's as fixed as God is unchangeable. I mean, there is, that's life. But we don't come to God as if to say we have anything to offer him because he's the cause of all things. And though we sin against him, he graciously, and in his eternal plan, chose to save us. That, that should move in us humility, dependence, fear, and a real hunger and a real thirst to say, I've got to know that God better. Because that's the only reason we are here, is for Him. That's what you would see in Romans 11, 33 and 36. For from him, from him, so he's the source, he's the cause, through him, he's the agent by which everything came into being, and for from him, through him, and to him are all things. For, for him, it's all about him. And so you can see that we can move naturally into the reality that God 
is unchangeable when we think about his perfection and self-existence. Because if he, because he needs nothing, change would require some sort of need, some sort of inadequacy, some sort of dependence, some sort of something outside of God. God needs nothing and is dependent on nothing, and therefore he does not and cannot change. See how those perfections help underscore, if you will, his immutability. And it is only as the self-existent and independent one that God can give us assurance that when he chooses to enter into his dealings and relationship with his creatures, that he will remain eternally the same and remain true to his people. So when God chooses to put on display his righteousness and interact with his people, with his creatures, nothing is divested of God. Nothing is taken away from God. He remains the same. And so, not only logically and, and, and natural connections show us that God is immutable, but what the Bible tells us, that he is immutable. And so this would be point number two. If, you, if, if you're going with me, the foundation of God's immutability, again, immutability is not dependent on those things, but it, it connects then the fact of God's immutability is, is abundantly clear in Scripture. You cannot walk away from the Bible and say that God is a God that changes, even if we consider some of those difficult passages. And so, um, so I want to walk through some of those passages. Some will explain. Oh man, I'm seeing, I'm seeing everybody. You guys are following me great, so thank you, but I can tell this is the end of the day for, for all of us. So, So, let's just see how clear this is for a few minutes. Numbers 23, verse 19. Balaam, Balak, and the talking donkey. You probably have that memorized, right? <laughs> and... Not to go into all the detail of the story, but Balaam is being enticed to, you know, say a curse on the nation of Israel, prophesy a curse on the nation of Israel, and and Balaam says this, you know, he, he even when he wants to say, even when he wants to do it, and then get whatever benefits were going to come to him. I'm shortchanging the story, but here's a here's a prophet that wanted to go give a curse to the nation of Israel, but God's plan. I love that. Says in verse 19, he says, Arise, verse 18, arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O, o son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So he makes that distinction right away. He's not a man. God is not like me. That he would lie, that he would change his mind, that he would repent, that he would go back on his word. He would somehow change. If he said he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Because his plan, his word, is all connected to his immutability. 
a lot of nastiness going on back there. But so, so, <laughs> because God is not a man, everything he says will happen, will happen. And again, the creator-creation cre distinction here, he's not a man, it is innate in man, especially because of the part of the fall of man. It's innate in man to lie and change his mind. But with God, there is no change because he's not a man. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. Again, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because I, I am going to preach on this. Um, and so we'll, we'll walk through that. We'll take a couple more sermons or so to get through 1 Samuel 15. But verse 29, right in the middle of those two passages, let's say, I regret that I made Saul king. And the narrator says, he regretted that he made Saul king. In the middle of that, Samuel says, verse 29, also the glory of Israel, and that speaks to his eternal nature, and it's the only place in all scripture where he is given this title. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. Why? For he is not a man that he will change his mind. So that is, that is huge. God is not a man who will not change his mind. Again, the creator-creation distinction is so critical. While everything else experiences change, God, who is not a man, does not change. Not even on the inside of him, if you will. Not even in his mind. Since God is eternal in nature, unlike man, everything he does or says will be accomplished. We can see that throughout. We're going to race through a couple passages. I'll make one little comment on each one as we go through the Psalm 3311. <coughs> Talking about his counsel and his plans. In verse 10, it says, Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plan of the peoples. <laughs> verse 11, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. His purpose is stands forever. Psalm 102, verse 25-28. Here is a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before Yahweh. Where should we go when we are weary and heavy laden? <laughs> the immutability of God. Verse 25, of old you have founded the earth, and heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will, you will change them, and they will be changed. God the ultimate cause, remember. But you are the same. And a poetic way to highlight his eternality. And your years will not come to an end. Children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. So, God does not change. It's not like everything else that wears out. Isaiah. We'll just hit a couple of verses quickly. Isaiah 31, verse 2. Yet he also is wise, talking about God, and will bring disaster and does not react, retract his words but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the iniquity, workers of iniquity. So he will not retract his words. He's not going to go back on what he said he's going to do. Chapter 40 and verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. You can't reach the understanding of God. Chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am He. He's the ever-present, ever-eternal, unchanging, I am. In chapter 43, verses 10 through 13, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So there you have His character, eternal, and then his act, his will, his plan, unchangeable. 46 and verse 4. Even to your old age I will be the same, and even to your great years I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. I might get in trouble for what I'm about to say here. <laughs> I've been here now seven years or so, and some of you have changed in the gray department. <laughs> Got a little more gray, but God stays the same. Sorry for those who have a birthday. 48 in verse 12. I know I'll get there at some point, or unless the Lord takes me earlier, we'll see. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I, whom I call. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the, the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. God does not change. And then we go to just a, a, another prophet highlighting this reality in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. So what's the final word in the Old Testament on the unchangeableness of God? Before 400 years of silence. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In a word, Yahweh does not change. And one critical testimony to God's immutability is the continuation of the ethnic Israel. God's word is so tied to that people. Whatever he said he's going to do physically and spiritually in and through the nation of Israel is as sure and as fixed as God's immutable nature. All right, one little hot more I had to say something. But Romans 11, 29 uh, and, and 34. Even God's gifts and God's calling are irrevocable there in Romans 11, 
29. Verse 34 as well. For who has known the mind of Yahweh or who became his counselor? His knowledge is unchangeable. God cannot learn anything. That's an amazing thing to think. He cannot learn anything. He's unchangeable in his knowledge. That's his omniscience, by the way. His immutability and his knowledge go hand in hand in what we call omniscience, omni-science, all knowledge. It's because he, he can't change. And then Hebrews 6. We just have two, two more passages here. Hebrews 6, verse 13 through 18. We already read one verse, so this is in God's covenant with Abraham, and then salvation, which extends beyond Abraham to, to all the nations, in these verses here. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. That's Abraham. For men swear by one greater than themselves. With them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness, his immutability there, there's the word, of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Why we call anchor study, anchor study, what? Mm -hmm. A hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Obviously, there's so much there, but God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant of salvation for all, Linked to his immutability, his immutable purpose and promise, God cannot lie. Your salvation it is so steadfast that it is connected to God's unchangeableness. One other passage, James 1.17 God is the giver of what is good. Um, this is in light of the reality that God is not the one that tempts people to do evil. As James says that. But we're tempted in our, in our own desires, our own lusts. He says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Just, just a few, just a slight observation here. No variation or shifting shadow. This, this means not the slightest appearance of changing God. Not even a hint. James is saying that there's not even, there's not even a hint of God changing. He's good, he's always good, and he does not change. And his gifts are connected to his goodness. So his goodness is immutable. 
And so God's word is abundantly clear that there is no change in God. He is immutable in his being and will. He is immutable in his perfection and purposes. So then, how are we to understand or interpret those passages in Scripture that say that God regrets or changes his mind or relents from the calamity that he has caused or has become angry and it seems as if he's reacting to his people as if his action is dependent upon the action of people? You have to come next week. Get that answer. And then also, I want to highlight some of those practical implications for your own life then. See David's high theology of God's immutability calling him his rock. So, if you have questions about that, we can, we can talk. I can point you to some resources about listening to, reading over the last year, praying through. Um, as I put it all together, I, when I still when I got done with this, I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> this just this just doesn't give you know just doesn't give it what it should to, to God's immutability. It just fell so short. At least as I'm thinking about these things, but there are some really good resources out there that you can read to grow in to think through this stuff, and it has been. The treasure of my heart to think about this, especially over the last year. Man, what a steadfastness for when everything here changes around us. And then, and in particular, just as you know, one sinner onto other sinners, I look at my sin, I look at my constant failure, and my inclination to, to go after that which is unholy. Find all my solace, all my hope in the fact that God is immutable. He's our rock and not ourselves. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the patience of your people and your blessing. Getting to be a part of this body of Christ in your immutable time. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us grow our knowledge of you so that we would worship you more accurately. And it's astounding to consider that even though our worship, our understanding of you falls so short, you still accept our worship, the truth that you that do. So we thank you that we have that privilege as sinners who have been saved by your glorious works. We need to worship you, speaking the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.